Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis, news, and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Sean Spear in conversation with David Frum. Enjoy. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as listeners and viewers will know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're discussing the latest economic developments, including the Federal Reserve's largest interest rate hike in nearly 30 years, Canadian Finance Minister Chris Christia Freeland's warnings about a soft landing, the political economy consequences of stagflation, and the ongoing collapse of cryptocurrencies. David, thank you for joining me, as always. Well, I would say it's a pleasure to be here, but after a week of havoc, uh, like like the week we've just uh, undergone, uh, let's just say I, I'm I'm... I'm, I'm glad to be anywhere. <laughs> uh, well, let's start with Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell's speech from last week. He began his opening statement by recognizing the hardship that high inflation is causing and committed to bringing inflation down as expeditiously as possible. He then announced the largest interest rate hike since the mid-1990s and signaled more are coming. If the Federal Reserve could be criticized for taking too long to recognize the inflation problem, it now seems seized by it. What do you think has contributed to the urgency? And more generally, David, what are your thoughts on how the Federal Reserve has handled these issues over the past couple of years? Well, let's begin by taking a a more global focus, because the Federal Reserve action um, was immediately followed by action from many other central banks, the Bank of Japan, the Swiss Central Bank. Um, It was clearly done in coordination with the European Central Bank, the Bank of England. Um, I'm sure the Bank of Canada was part of all of this. We had coordinated action by a number of the leading, world's leading central banks against what is a global problem. That this is, we are not in the world of the 1970s where um, there's a lot of individual monetary autonomy country by country, um, that we have a, a, a global problem. The, the governments of the world together created massive fiscal stimulus and massive liquidity uh, to mitigate the shock of the pandemic. Governments underestimated how much inflation there would be because the last time this happened, back in 2009, um, governments put in what they thought was massive liquidity, ma- massive support, and we got a sluggish response just about everywhere, not in Canada, but uh, but just about everywhere else, especially in the United States, and very little inflation. So effectively what they did uh, in the United States, the amount of stimulus between 2020 and 2022 was more than triple. In f- the, the fiscal stimulus was more than triple the stimulus in 2009. The monetary stimulus was was enormous as well, maybe not as big as in 2009. And 
there was a gamble that this time, this time it would not deliver inflation, but this time was different and it, and it did. And so governments all over the world, central banks all over the world are going to have to squeeze the inflation out. And my guess is it's, it's, it is going to hurt and it's not going to be a soft landing. Well, let me take you up on that specific point, uh, David. Um, Powell's remarks emphasize that the U.S. economy is strong and able to withstand tighter monetary policy. Yet Canadian Finance Minister Christia Freeland also gave a major speech last week in which she took a bit of a, a less definitive tact. She warned that a self, a quote, a self landing is not guaranteed. What do you think is behind these slightly different messages? Why do you think the Canadian government may be hedging on a possible recession? Well, Jay Powell is not up for re-election and Christian Freeland is. Um, he doesn't have to worry about uh, the voters. She does. And of course, her rendezvous with destiny is probably pretty close. Um, so, uh, yeah, they, 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 they want to they prepare people for, for what may be coming. Uh, I think one of the things you always have to worry about in these situations is, um, I forget now who was the stock market wisecracker who said, when the tide goes out, you discover who's been swimming naked. That in, whenever things begin to go sour, you discover points of vulnerability that were concealed during boom times, concealed during easy money. So uh, back in 2008, nine, for example, remember the slowdown in the U.S. housing market starts in March of 2007. That's the peak month. And prices and sales begin to decline in March of 2007. And for uh, and the first bankruptcy on Wall Street doesn't occur until, until almost a year later, more than a year later, spring of 2008, when Bear Stearns goes under. And the attitude from early 2007 until the summer of 2008 was, okay, this subprime market, it looks like it's going to be a shambles, but the subprime market is not that big. And I, you know, my institution had nothing to do with the subprime market, so we'll be fine. And no one understood until it was too late. The subprime market had been wired into everything else through these um, debt obligations, through these trip, these triple A uh, bonds that contain little pieces you know, remember the Monty Python joke about we have, uh, what, what do you have for dinner? We have um, rat pie, rat pudding, rat sorbet, and strawberry tart. Well, is there any rat in the strawberry tart? A little, how, mu how much? Three. Um, and what you discover, so all kinds of people discovered that, that their, what they thought was their strawberry tart was in fact rat tart full of subprime mortgages. So one of the questions we have to grapple with now is wh where, where are the hidden hand grenades um, through the economy that accumulated during the times of cheap money? And I'm very worried about crypto because I think crypto is, is like subprime in that it was a relatively small, relatively specialized market. You could go into it if you wanted to and, and you thought you could avoid it if you didn't want to go into it. But I worry that there has, there has been debt accumulated against crypto assets. And the thing I would direct people's attention to is the fate of a financial institution called Celsius. Celsius offered itself as an alternative to banking. It offered very high uh, interest rates on deposits of cryptocurrency, and it paid those high returns by engaging in a lot of leverage transactions with other forms of cryptocurrency. So it's closed its doors. It will not be paying its depositors. Um, and the question is, how hermetically sealed is an institution like that and others from the rest of the financial system? And if there's connections, if we discover that other people who are didn't think they were doing currency, have exposure to cryptocurrency, that, that could be the cryptocurrency, sorry, the hidden hand grenade, or it could be something else. We'll come back to, to cryptocurrency because I want to um, ask you about some of your comments over the past week or so um, along the lines that you just outlined. But before we get there, David, you know, one of the great benefits of being able to draw on your commentary is you, you bring together so many different points of analysis, economic, social, political, 
and, and historical. You mentioned earlier that one of the, the challenges in um, the fiscal monetary response in the past couple of years has been misreading the history from the, the global financial crisis. We now have commentators drawing historical connections to our current moment and the 1970s. Uh, the World Bank, for instance, has cut its global uh, growth projections and now warns of stagflation. One gets a sense, David, that we're already living in a politically fraught moment. Um, Tensions are high in Washington. We're only months removed from the trucker protests in Ottawa. What do you think about the political fallout from a sustained bout of stagflation? I mean, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but are we at risk of entering a period of heightened political instability and social tension? Well, we've had a lot of instability and social tension. Um, I don't think whatever we're facing is going to look very much uh, like the 1970s, uh, for, for, a num- for a number of reasons. In the 1970s, we had very resource-intensive and especially energy-intensive economies, much more so than now. It took a lot more um, energy to produce $1,000 worth of GDP in 1970 than it does today. And, the, and we are much more reliant on one particular, particular forms of energy that Oil, crude oil, was by far, especially in North America, the most important fuel with coal second and everything else a distant third. And natural gas was not as important then as now. And uh, certainly we didn't have the, um, the renewables. Um, and you know, hydro was a, bigger, was a bigger factor and nuclear was a bigger factor then than, than now. But still, these were, these were very vulnerable economies to energy shocks. And then we had a whole series and sequence of energy shocks because the energy market was a lot less diversified those days. I mean, it's really important to remember now that the largest producer of both oil and gas on the planet is the United States. Um, that, was, uh, that had been true in the 1950s and 60s. Then American production declined sharply, and the world became ever more reliant on the Persian Gulf in one of the most unstable parts of the world. Um, but there, there we have, we've got many more sources of supply. We also, um, in the 1970s, we had a social model that emerged in the depression and the war of very powerful labor unions that worked in tandem with businesses and governments. And that social model had, had done, achieved many good things for many people, but it had outlived its usefulness. And so one of the things that happened in the 1970s was we pivoted to a different kind of social model and it was painful uh, and resisted, contested. And, and the new model also has pluses and minuses. But working all of that out was, was I think, a major trauma. I think uh, we're going to discover that um, th- this is it's just going to be very different. And um, so much of it is, is very related to the specific problems of what was done to combat the COVID shock and then the difficulty of undoing what was done to combat the COVID shock. But the undoing will, be un- will in- eventually be undone. And I think we'll find a, n- a new kind of economic stability. I hope so. So maybe that's misleading my analysis. But I also think so. Well, that's a great segue to my uh, next question, David. If there is a silver lining here, is it possible that this experience is interpreted as something of a rejection of a more activist economic policy approach, including low interest rates and high fiscal deficits, and it leads to renewed support for a more sensible and clear-eyed economic policy agenda? Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're right about that. I think there's, there's both a narrow political economy benefit that we could have, and then a larger social economic benefit. So the political economic benefit is um, we needed to learn a lesson that inflation is always a, a potential threat. I mean, you have to be pretty old uh, to remember um, that money costs money 
um, that we have had you know, a series of economic waves, all based on the idea of in the 1990s, very cheap money, in the 2000s, nearly free money, and in the 2010s, free money. And a lot of business ideas look good if the capital is free uh, that maybe don't look so good uh, if the capital is not free. Uh, and uh, that's one of the things that Wall Street has been telling us is that um, you know maybe it's not going to be quite so cheap to have a gourmet meal delivered to your ha- to your house. You know maybe it actually makes does make more sense for you to go to the restaurant than for the restaurant to come to you. Um, so those kinds of those kinds of things are going to happen. I think that but there's a big social economic possibility that I see ahead, and it's, it's going to be bumpy, and it's going to be especially bumpy for the commercial real estate sector, a part of the economy very dear to my heart. A lot of friends and family involved with it. But we have had a model of people leaving their homes and going to work. Um, and we in, in, invented that model in the days of the factory of the 19th century. And we continue that model in the days of the office of the 20th century. And we continue that model even further, even as the internet came about. And one of the, one of the questions that the pandemic raised is, do people need to travel so regularly to the office? I think many businesses believe it is more efficient for people to go to the office, and so you have to respect that. But it's also true that there are efficiencies when people go to the office somewhat less. Many of them are captured by women who can have more flexible uh, working arrangements to, uh, with their families. Um, but they also there also are some interesting possibilities here for the way we use energy. I have long argued that a big part of the solution to the, en- to the greenhouse gas and uh, climate change problem comes not from changing the engines that take people from place to place, but rethinking how often people need to go from place to place, rethinking how cities um, use their space and encouraging the development of communities, which are live work play, uh, where, you know, you, you live in a townhouse on one end of a development. There is some kind of workplace on the other end of the development. And then in between are, are restaurants and places of amusement and entertainment um, and that encourage you to use the car on weekends, but when you go back and forth about your day, it's possible to go on foot more. And if you can rearrange space like that, uh, it, you can still use gasoline-powered motors and, ch- and capture many more efficiencies than if people were making the same, this exact same trip, but with an electric rather than a gasoline motor. Um, and I think we, are, we, we had a big forced experiment with that during COVID. But as we emerge from COVID, I think we're having some new voluntary experiments and it's going to take us a while to get the right answer. And again, I don't want to d- dismiss the concerns of employers that like that think we get more work out of people when they come to the office. And it's also that, look, we're paying you. You should work on our timetable, not on your timetable. But if it's possible to do a little bit less of that, there are some benefits there, too, especially for women. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that, David. Just as an aside, this is an issue that we intend to, to tackle in the coming weeks and months at The Hub. You, you know, you hear arguments about the, the benefits of network effects. You know, the, what Matt Ridley describes is ideas having sex that comes from um, people being 
uh, together in an office or some other setting um, with some of the downsides of, of that model, including the costs and consequences of long commutes for families and, and health and, and so on. So I'm viewers and listeners interested in those issues, stay tuned. David, let me ask a follow-up question, though, about you know what one might describe as economic and fiscal policy orthodoxy and the consequences of the experience we're going through. And in, and in particular, I want to ask about the Republican Party. The Republican playbook prior to 2016 was pretty conventional on taxes, spending, and deficits. At least in theory, Paul Ryan's thinking prevailed as party orthodoxy. Donald Trump basically dismissed all of that. His administration cut taxes, raised spending, and ran massive deficits. As we start to see some prepositioning in advance of the 2024 presidential primary, do you think we'll see any candidates establish their pre-Trump credentials, or is the party never going back to the Ryan-era economic and fiscal policy orthodoxy in, in your view? Here's something I think Donald Trump has permanently changed for Republicans and maybe for everybody, uh, which is he has made the Republicans a protectionist party. And uh, that is the one place where the Biden people have been most continuous with Trump, unfortunately. Um, that there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of protectionism in the Biden era too. I, I, it's just a couple of things about things that haven't happened under Biden. Um, no attempt. Uh, the USMCA, the USMACA agreement that was supposed to be the NAFTA 2.0, solved none of the important problems that existed in NAFTA 1.0. Um, you would think that a responsible government would come to say, okay, there were real issues here. Like uh, NAFTA dates back to before the era of online shopping. Dates back before the era of streaming services. Um, you know, we, we should have some kind of continental charter so that Netflix can do business uh, more efficiently. So it's possible to deliver packages back and forth in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Um, that, that, those are real gaps that, um, that were just not imagined in the 80s. So let's do them now. That, that, that should happen. Uh, Trump repeatedly promised uh, some kind of U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement to um, mitigate some of the harm the British did to themselves by leaving the European Union. Uh, he made no effort. Um, and Biden has made no effort. So, so um, our British friends are kind of stranded. One of the world's most trade-dependent economies is is outside most trade arrangements that it, that it so desperately needs. And that was their mistake, but we're their friends and we want to help them. Um, no action. Uh, so that, I think, um, the legacy of protectionism looks to be an enduring one, very unfortunately. And that's something that I don't know who's going to take up again the cause of um, global commerce, whether it will be the right or will be the left. Um, but that's one of the most, has always been the most, single most important thing it's necessary to get right. If you get that right, you can get a lot of other things wrong. If you get that wrong, it really almost doesn't matter what else you get right. Um, I think we are going to see, we're going to have to see in the 2020s moves back to fiscal orthodoxy from governments of left and right. Um, you cannot continue to run trillion dollar deficits. Uh, and, Herb Stein, the very witty American economist, used to say, if something cannot continue forever, it will stop. And I think we're going to see that with the massive kind of deficit incursions. Um, it felt easy because interest rates were low. Uh, what the world is about to discover is what Canada discovered under Prime Minister Mulroney. Mulroney balanced, Canada inherited huge deficits from Pierre Trudeau. Mulroney balanced the operating budget. The government taxed more than it spent on its operations. The problem was that the debt left behind by Trudeau was so enormous and the interest rates were so high that even as you ran a surplus on actually delivering goods and services and benefits to people, you're still running a deficit on the total cost of government. And it took even more draconian cuts in the 1990s and then an era of very low interest rates to bring Canada's fiscal, 
affairs into order. Um, I think the whole world is going to face that problem, that uh, debts and deficits, everything you say about them in a world of 1% interest looks very different in a world of 5% interest, or God forbid, a world of 7 or 8% interest. So, uh, so that's going to, that's going to change. And I, I, but I think it's very up for grabs where the parties are going to land. I think one of the things that really is true in the Trump years, the, the traditional pattern of who was on which side of questions that lasted basically from, from the New Deal to the 1990s. That's not how it was before the New Deal between the parties. And maybe it's not going to be how it is afterwards. I mean, Clinton and the Democrats made a real bid to make the Democrats the party of fiscal orthodoxy. That changed, but that, that could happen. And I think what a lot of us are going to need to ask ourselves about our politics is, are we Republicans and Democrats first, or are we believers in free trade and fiscal orthodoxy first? And for me, whoever is for free trade and fiscal orthodoxy, I'm for them. And I don't care what the label is. I'm, I'm for the guys who are for free trade and fiscal orthodoxy, the guys and women for free trade and fiscal orthodoxy. Well, we'll no doubt uh, see uh, that debate start to take shape as we move closer to the primaries. I want to come back, David, uh, to something you raised earlier in the conversation about cryptocurrencies. This is a development, of course, that broadly coincides with the Trump era. And until recently, Bitcoin was considered a store of value, somewhat immune to the fluctuations in the value of, of risk assets. It's now subject to the sort of factors that move the value of risk assets like inflation, stock markets and Fed monetary policy. Why were the assumptions that crypto and Bitcoin would decouple from the rest of the financial markets wrong? There were obviously many of the people promoting uh, uh, were either fantasists or liars. Look, if you if you invent a product whose authentic, actual, functional business case is that it's a really good product for criminals, you shouldn't be surprised if it turns out that a lot of the people promoting the contract the product are not completely honest in what they say about it. There is, I mean, Bitcoin, I don't want to be completely flipped because I, I am told there are important uses of Bitcoin for political dissidents and authoritarian regimes. And if it helps them, God bless, God bless, bless Bitcoin, that that's, that's a good thing. But the, the core business use for Bitcoin was always it was a way to make um, criminal transactions more invisible to the state. Now, that's a real business, unfortunately, um, and it creates real value. And, and I can understand why Bitcoin got to be the five and $8,000 level um, before the pandemic. But what happened in the pandemic was clearly a speculative bubble. And, it, and look, God sends you warnings. If a product goes up and up and up in value during an era of super cheap money, and someone is saying it will go up even more if money is becomes expensive, that's facially implausible, right? That, that if, if Bitcoin is um, a hedge against inflation, then it should have gone down when inflation was low. It should have become worth less during the pandemic. The very fact that it turned out that uh, during a deflationary shock, during uh, during massive monetary ease, it went up from what it was eight to fifty. That's a warning that when the old conditions return, it's going back from fifty to eight. And the the inability of people to figure out something so obvious as that tells you, I mean, how much of this was I mean, it was driven by charlatans, but it was taken advantage. But it was, but the victims, of course, are are non charlatans. The victims are the gullible. And what we all have to earnestly hope is that. The gullible were not able to borrow too much money against their Bitcoin holdings and did, and have not exposed the rest of the system to risk. I mean, what what is happening is very painful for them and for their loved ones. Uh, but from a system point of view, we have to worry, did they spread their mistake to others? And we, I don't think we know the answer to that. And I, I fear we're going to find out over the next few months. 
What, what do you think the political or policy uh, fallout will be, David, from um, some of these develops in, in the cryptocurrency markets in the past week or, or 10 days? Well, I think an important policy fallout is we have to decide we have to decide the crypto, uh, whether cryptocurrency is um, a security or not. You know, it's illegal in the United States, and I assume in Canada, I don't know this part of Canadian law, to, um, to sell a security without certain kinds of registration and disclosures. Um, if, you, if these things are securities, then uh, they, they, there will be a regulatory regime. If they're not securities, if they're currency, uh, then they should, then we need to come up with some kind of deposit insurance system for them. And by the way, the people who, and deposit insurance is insurance. You pay for deposit insurance. It's not free. It's not a gift to the, from you, from the government to you. You have to pay for it. So we have to find some way that the holders of Bitcoin will pay a premium to get insurance to protect their deposits. Or if it's a security, we need to regulate the transaction securities. Um, what it is right now, which is a product invented to meet the needs of the criminal community that is then speculated upon by people who are in the every normal community, that's just dangerous to them and possibly dangerous to the system. Uh, let me wrap up, David. I, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time this week, but as you said at the outset, there's so much uh, news and, and economic developments to dig into. I asked about the potential policy and political fallout of crypto in particular. Let me just ask about the policy and political fallout of uh, some of these broader trends in the economy. We have midterm elections coming up in the United States. You know, we, we ostensibly won't have a, a federal election in Canada until 2025, but we may have uh, a leadership race within the Liberal Party. We currently have one occurring within the Conservative Party of Canada. Let me just uh, wrap up with some final comments or observations about what a possible recession and some of the economic costs that that households will face as a result of the steps being taken by central banks may mean for our politics. It's actually pretty simple. And this is the message of the Australian election, which is incumbents everywhere are in a lot of trouble. Um, this is a, going to be a, a bad few years to be an incumbent. Uh, th there will always be exceptions. If you're an incumbent who can make a special case, you've done an unusually good job, um, you may survive. But I think your default assumption is that if you're in power in 2021 and 2022, you will not be in power the next time the voters get a chance to comment on your performance. And that will be true whether, whether the, um, so I, I think, you know, uh, I just assume that obviously the Democrats are in a lot of trouble for 22. I think they're in a lot of trouble for 24. The liberals in Canada are in a lot of trouble um, because I'm not the first to point this out. In a recession, most people keep their jobs. Um, and however nervous and fearful they are, the fact is the harms of a recession are concentrated on a finite range of the population, maybe 8%, maybe more lose their jobs, other people lose investments, but but the majority come out of it, uh, uh, read about it, don't feel it. Inflation hits everybody. and So inflation is much more politically hazardous to governments than recessions are. Governments can survive recessions, they can't survive inflation. And the, the one-two punch of, first you have an inflation uh, that spreads harms generally, then you have a recession that concentrates harms, intense harms specifically, that's really dangerous for incumbents everywhere. And so uh, we saw that in Australia. I think we're going to see that now uh, throughout the world with a few exceptions where incumbents can make special cases that they somehow beat the odds. Well, uh, thank you, David. Just a, a ton of insight today as usual. I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of From Dialogues and, and look forward and catching up in a couple of weeks, hopefully with some more positive news uh, than today. <laughs> Let's hope for better news ahead. Agreed. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. 
We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.